Well, I may not have to tell you that this is a time in history when the acts of many leaders that have been committed in secret are being exposed. Seems like exposed leaders is a little more common now than it used to be. And you're probably more or less in touch with that and maybe more or less troubled by that trend right now uh, based on how connected you are to the internet. Now, some of you don't even have an internet connection and I would not encourage you to live any differently. It's hardly a beautiful place anymore. Others of you, though, are uh, well attuned to the things that are going on, to the number of Christian leaders and Christian celebrities who have had their secret acts exposed and who we look at and we say, oh, I trusted that person. They turned out not to be worthy of my trust. Uh, The number of politicians who have had wickedness exposed in their lives, things that world leaders are up to that we know they're up to that we didn't used to know that they were up to. Uh, Along with that can come for many of us on one hand, it's like our eyes are opening to the fact that the, the world is just a darker place than we thought. You know, for me, I grew up in a pretty healthy church and a pretty healthy youth group and things were great. And then I went away to college and a ministry that seemed pretty healthy but had its problems. And the more and more things got exposed in the world, I realized the world's a much darker place than, than I thought it was. And I know for some of you guys, it's your old youth director who turned out to not be a Christian and is leaving the faith or the person that led you to Christ or someone you trusted on the internet who taught you a lot turned out to be a wolf or a fraud. Uh, One of the questions that can hit the heart deep that I think the Lord means to address this morning is, is just simply, does God care? All these people have done these awful things and it kind of feels like they got away with it for a while. Does God, does God care about that? Does God care about what they did? And does he care about the trust that we all put in our leaders? We certainly have feelings when they fail. Does God have feelings when they fail? We are going to read this morning a 2,700-year-old prophecy that answers that question. Yes, God does care. and He has very strong feelings about it when people with power abuse their power to hurt the people under them. If you're just joining us this morning, we are in the third week in a series on the book of Micah. Micah was a mighty prophet who rose up to declare that there was no one like God and successfully called the king of Jerusalem to turn and saved the city of Jerusalem. We've walked through several pictures that he has painted and now we look at a day when he rises up before the courts of Jerusalem, before the king of Jerusalem and the officials and princes and judges in Jerusalem, presumably all gathered together and renounces the injustice in their leadership. And before we actually read it, I want you to know the outcome of the words. I hinted at this in the first sermon in this series. We are coming now upon the very words that pricked the heart of King Hezekiah and moved him to repent of the many things that were being done in Jerusalem. That story is told later in the book of Jeremiah, and I'm going to read you just an excerpt from it so you can know where this is going. About a hundred or so years later, the prophet Jeremiah rose up confronting problems in his day, and he referred back to these words we're going to read today. Here's what he says. He says, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah the king and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, and now he's going to quote words that are in today's sermon text, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Those are 
the last verse. That is the last verse that we will read today in our text. Then he says, did, king, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? No, did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? So what will happen after this thundering word is pronounced is the king of Hezekiah, will be, his heart will be broken. Uh, then his officials under him, he will move them all to turn and to stop with the wickedness they're doing. He will entreat God's favor and God actually will not destroy Jerusalem as he threatens to do in today's text. So that means this text is brought before God's people in that royal court that day as a call to turn, as a call to repent. And he would mean the same thing for us as well. He would call us to see the glory of what he intends to do through rulers and through leaders. And for those of us in leadership, what is it that he calls of us? And then to examine our own hearts and say, Lord, have I not measured up to this? What must I turn from today? So we have at once a warning before those of us in leadership and a call to repentance for those of us who have failed the Lord in this way. Let's turn now to Micah 3 and we will read the words of the prophet Micah. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and the flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when there is something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. And yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The words of the Lord. Through those words, through that oracle, the Lord warns all of us in leadership against unjust leadership and calls unjust leaders to repent and return to him. With these words, as you can see, the prophet rose up and he confronted the injustices, the bribes, everything that was happening in the royal courts of that day, and essentially said to them, because of these acts, because you are doing these things, the city is going to be destroyed. 
And as we saw in Jeremiah, this moved the heart of the king. He turned, the people turned, and the Lord did not destroy the city after all. The book of Micah is made up of three cycles. You could think of it as three sermons, chapter 1 and 2, and then 3, 4, and 5, and then 6 and 7. And it almost feels like the same sermon three times with just different illustrations, you might say, and different applications. Uh, The first time through, we're now in the second time through, the first time through, he rose up at the same point and he confronted not the princes and the nobles, but the landowners. Jerusalem had had many generations of prosperity And one way or another, all of the land had fallen into the hands of a few elite people. This happens sometimes in history. And when it does, typically those landowners will use their wealth and their power to oppress everyone else. So not just the poor, but the middle class and the upper middle class even uh, were being oppressed by these rich, wealthy, very elite landowners. At one point he says, you strip the rich robe from him who passes by trustingly with no thought of war. So Even people that could afford a nice coat and a nice robe were being oppressed by these landowners. And one question you might ask would be, now wait a minute, God's laws are just and good, and the Lord wrote Israel's law, so wouldn't this be the most just law of any nation in history? And yeah, it would be. So if we've got this wonderful just law written by the finger of God governing this nation, How did these landowners get away with swiping up all the land and oppressing all the people who lived on their land? Shouldn't that not happen in a nation that has just law? Well, we get that question answered here in chapter 3. How were they able to get away with it? It's because the princes, the judge, and the king who were enforcing the law were accepting bribes from the landowners so that they could get away with their oppression. Just laws don't do very much good if the people enforcing them are unjust and take bribes. So Micah then takes his confrontation straight to the top. He confronts the king, confronts the nobles, confronts the judges, the princes, and all of them. We're going to start first looking at it by looking at verse 1 and 2. The last line of verse 1 and the first line of verse 2 where the Lord lays out his expectation for them. What were they supposed to be doing? From there we can gain much about what we ought to expect from our princes, our rulers, our laws, our leader in every area of life. He says to them in the last line of verse 1, Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? So you can see there what he expects. He expects those who are given authority in this world to know justice deeply, to know the difference between right and wrong, and to know that even more than other people know it, so that they can do what is in the next line. These rulers were hating the good and loving the evil. The job of the people in government is to reward the good and punish the evil. So God's expectation of those to whom he gives authority is that they would know right and wrong very deeply and that then they would reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. 
This assumes several things that are taught elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, this foundation for leadership and why God puts government in the world and puts fathers in houses and things like this. Very much lost in our society, much confusion. We don't understand this as much. So I want to back up and just lay some of that foundation. What is Micah assuming here that the rest of the Bible teaches? Three assumptions kind of undergird what he is expecting of these leaders. The first is that God is the sovereign king of the universe. He's the one finally in charge. Otherwise, the Lord could not come, send a prophet, and confront rulers for how they're acting. Right? So there's an assumption here that God's in charge. He can confront these rulers for their actions. The second assumption is that all of God's ways are good. If he is the sovereign king, he is over all, he has embedded in this universe a real right and a real wrong. And the things that are right to do really are right. And the things that are wrong really are wrong. We didn't make up right and wrong as people. God embedded that into the world. Not only that, but his ways are good. And so when people together do right by one another, things tend to go better. If we as a church treat each other rightly instead of wrongly, things go better as a church. There has probably been some time in your life when you have been frustrated and thought to yourself, oh, if everyone would just do right, this wouldn't be so bad, right? Maybe you're reading about politics and you're frustrated about it. Oh, if everyone would just do right, this wouldn't be a problem, right? Or maybe your family's in conflict and you're thinking to yourself, if everyone would just do right, this wouldn't be a problem. If you've ever thought that or felt that way, it's because God's ways are good and good for people. And because you're right, if everyone would just do right, then many of these things would not be a problem. So that's our second assumption here that Micah is making, that God's ways are good and they're good for people. Things will go better with a culture, with a society, with a family, if people would do right by one another. And then the third assumption Micah is making here is that God does indeed put some people in authority over other people. Uh, he is embedded into the world institutions like the family. We didn't, we didn't make up family. That's not a social construct. God, God designed that and built it. Or the fact that nations wind up under rulers and laws. Uh, the Lord made that. The, the fact that workplaces often wind up with a supervisor who's responsible for all the work and coordinates it all. The Lord built those kind of structures into the world. We didn't make those things up. We didn't make up the church. The Lord designed the church. He instituted it and founded it. And he tends to give uh, certain people who are in charge of those institutions. So that means that if you work somewhere, uh, your company exists under God's hand of providence. He decided that company ought to exist. And whoever is leading you there is there because God put them there in your life. Uh, we live here in the United States of America, and our president is Joseph Biden. And he is in the Oval Office right now, if that's where he physically is, because God put him there. And a whole lot of senators and representatives, uh, Supreme Court justices who are there because God put them there. So God gives these people uh, the idea of being a blessing to everyone uh, so that under their leadership, people might flourish, people might do well, that we might thrive together. That is why what he expects of them is that they would know right and wrong deeply and reward the good and punish the evil. Uh, that means that when our nation's laws line up with God's laws, 
We have a just government, and when those are enforced in the ways that God gives us to enforce them in a just way, we have just government and just leadership. That means that when a father's raising of his children, the rules he puts in his house, you can do this, you cannot do this. When you do this, I will discipline you this way. When you do that, I'll reward you like this. When those rules that the father puts upon the children, when they line up with the true right and wrong in the universe, with God's rules, we got just fatherhood, just family leadership. And that is the condition under which children can, can thrive. They can do really well in those kind of situations. Because the daughter doesn't have to worry about the son bullying her and being mean to her because she knows that dad will take care of that. Uh, because the children are raised in the ways of God and they're instilled good habits within them and they can grow up and they can thrive. This is what the Lord uh, does this for. So rulers, leaders in all institutions do this by rewarding the good, by holding evil accountable. And when they do this well, we get a picture in 2 Samuel 23 and in Psalm 72 of what it looks like. Uh, David says that when a ruler, when a king in a land rules justly and in the fear of God, that he dawns on them like the sun and the dew on the grass. You get, you get wet grass, the sun shines on it like it's doing right now in September, and your lawns are showing the result, right? Boom, it just grows, it thrives, it flourishes. When you put a group of people under the leadership of a king who says, all right, the ways in this country are going to be God's ways. We're going to do things the way God says to do them. There's the condition for a country to, to thrive like grass does in the field. We read this also in Psalm 72. This is either about King Solomon or by King Solomon. I'll read you just an excerpt. This writer is pleading that the king would indeed live and rule in this kind of justice. He says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you as long as the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. And here's the image again. May he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, like the showers that water the earth. So may, may the rule of this just king cause our land to thrive and to flourish. Because when you know that the guy who owns the business next to you can't get away with stealing from your business... Well, you're going to have a better climate that you can do business in and people are going to begin to thrive. When people know that they can walk the streets and do business and play baseball and do all sorts of things together without the fear of crime and evil in their neighborhood, well, things begin to thrive in the neighborhood and things begin to go well. And so they plead, God, would you give this king your justice? So there's what God expects of those who he puts in authority for them to know right and wrong deeply so that they can reward the good and hold evil accountable. That looks different in different places. Uh, if you're a police officer, for instance, uh, you've been entrusted with a tremendous amount of authority, a, a weapon on your hip, and, and rules by which you can draw that weapon in certain instances and fire it and even kill a person with that weapon. So what does the Lord expect of you? Well, you need to know Indiana law really well so that you know when you can pull that weapon and when you cannot pull that weapon. 
And you need to have a strong moral compass calibrated to God's true north. What is right? What is wrong? And use that limited authority that's been given to you in a way that God would be pleased with. If you do that, then people drive more safely on our highways. The, the streets are safer. The neighborhoods are safer. Even the economy in Greenwood would get better. Probably the population in Greenwood would go up just from the just actions of police officers. This is why we thank God for people like this and why we honor them when we see them because God is using them for everybody to flourish and to thrive. Or if you're in a schoolroom, let's say you're a teacher in a schoolroom, and let's say you're teaching about, uh, I don't know, the way that a bee dives into a power, flower and pollinates it and moves to the next one. And there's a whole fascinating process behind that. Uh, well, on one hand, what you're teaching needs to line up with what's true. You need to really know how bees and flowers and all that stuff operates before you start teaching it to children. And the rules that you have in your class, that authority you've been given to write detentions and send kids to the office and whatever disciplinary measures you have, you're entrusted with that limited power to make sure that this student doesn't bully or distract that student and this student over here doesn't cause a distraction and everything goes well for all the students. If you do that well, if you teach true things to the students and you reward those who do well and you hold accountable those who do not, those students, those children are in the conditions to thrive. You'll be like the sun and the rain on grass for those kids and they'll rise up and they will thrive. This goes for fathers and families, for pastors in churches. Everybody, a lot of people in steward of just a limited amount of authority, not absolute power, a limited amount. And God says, I expect you to use this justly and according with my ways, my right, my wrong. And that means we have an application point already before we dive very deep into things. That is for anyone who aspires to leadership or anyone who is in it right now. If you think you may be married one day or maybe a boss in the office one day or who knows, learn God's ways from his word so that you can lead justly. Young men, if you want to one day be the husband of a wife and the father of children, I want to ask, how can you do that well without reading from this word every day? How can you prepare yourself to lead your wife, to teach your children the truth, to raise your children in the fear of God if you don't know the word of God today? How can you love your wife like Christ loved the church if you're not interested in reading about Christ's love for the church today? So part of what God puts on leaders, you need to know justice. You need to know God's ways deeply. And if you think leadership could be in your future, you need to prepare for that now by knowing his ways well. Now that's how it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be that leaders know God's ways. They reward the good. They hold evil accountable and everybody flourishes as a result. Micah rises up here to confront the very opposite. That is, leaders who use that power to abuse and oppress those under them for their own gain. And if you've been around in the world much, you probably know just what that is like. A ruler who does this, who abuses the people that God has given them for their own gain, commits a double offense against God. First, they have harmed someone made in God's image who God cares about. And second, 
they have done it with power that God gave them. You might think of uh, a mother wrapping a Christmas present, and maybe she's wrapping many Christmas presents, and she gets to the end of the roll, and there is the ultimate childhood toy, a, a cardboard tube, freely available, right? Is this not the best toy of it all? You can look through it, you can hit stuff with so much you can do with a cardboard tube. And so she looks at this thing and she says, you know, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. And my four-year-old would just love to play with this thing. So I'm going to find her. She goes and finds her daughter and says, hey, check it out, cardboard tube. She's like, cardboard tube. And so she's playing with a cardboard tube. Mom goes back, she continues wrapping more presents. And then she hears screaming in the room next door. So she goes to check on it again, and the four-year-old is taking the cardboard tube and hitting baby sister in the face with it. Okay. Two problems there, right? One, you're hitting your sister in the face with a cardboard tube, but don't miss the other problem. I gave you that tube, right? So this is a double offense, like you're doing something wrong with something that I gave to you. And so for a leader who's been entrusted and stewarded with power that they have the ability to abuse, when they abuse that power, the Lord doesn't just say you are harming someone I care about. He's saying you're doing it with a gift that I gave you. You're doing it with a cardboard tube that I gave to you. And so now we have offended God doubly with an offense like this. This can explain some of why Micah uses such graphic image when he talks about it. Hear this imagery again in verses 2 and 3. He says, you tear the skin from my people. You tear their flesh off their bones. Eating the flesh of my people, flaying their skin from them, breaking their bones into pieces and chopping them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Does the Lord sound mad? Yes, the Lord sounds mad when he is talking about that. And part of what he's doing here is he's showing to us just how disgusting to him corrupt and abusive leadership really is. He is describing these people like like cannibals, like the, like the villain in the Halloween movie who is chopping up somebody's hands and putting their bones in a, in a cauldron. This is the wording he would use to describe unjust leaders, those who would oppress the people under them. So how gross is corrupt leadership to God? As gross as cannibalism. It's a big deal to him. A double offense to harm someone with the gift and power that God gave them. There is an irony in the consequence and punishment that they will face, the judgment they will face. Now, again, what was going on was that the landowners, the elite landowners, or, you know, a handful of people owned all the land and just got to work everybody because of this. Uh, they were oppressing the people that lived on their land worked on their land, and they were bribing the officials to get away with it. And so what would happen then is someone who would work on a field, who was going through some awful thing that their landowner was putting them through, would come to the rulers and say, look what they're doing to us. Would you grant us justice? This is illegal what they're doing to us. And the princes, the judges, would say, not my problem. Sorry. Because they were taking bribes from the landowners. So when the oppressed and the poor came to them, they did not listen because they were taking bribes. 
Now let's look at verse 4 and see what judgment will come upon them. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So we see there the irony in the justice and judgment that God is going to give them. You closed your ears to the cries of the oppressed because you were being bribed. Now, when I judge you, you will cry to me, and I will close my ears to you the same way that you closed your ears to them. This is said differently in the book of Proverbs. It says a a father, a king, is telling his son, who will be a ruler, if you close your ear to the cry of a poor, you yourself call out and not be answered. And he's saying this specifically to rulers, to kings. The book of Proverbs is written to future kings and princes. Saying to them, the Lord has put you into power so that you can stand up for the people who can't stand up for themselves. You have power for the sake of the powerless. And so if they come to you and you don't listen to them, one day you're going to cry out to the Lord and he is not going to listen to you. This is exactly the kind of wisdom that Micah is bringing to bear here as he says, you rulers who would not hear the cry of the poor because you were being bribed against them, one day you're going to cry out to God under judgment and the Lord is not going to hear you. And finally in verses 9 to 12, we see him sum things up and then give kind of this stinger of an ending. He sums it all up. He says, you're building Zion with blood. You're building Jerusalem with iniquity. Especially this whole empire you have built. You have built it on a foundation of blood and injustice. And so he rises up in verse 12 to give the big stinger. Because of you, the Lord is going to tear it all down. Zion is going to be plowed like it's a field for the farming. Jerusalem's going to be a heap of rubble and ruins. The mountain of the house, meaning that high mountain that the temple and the palace sat upon, are just going to be woods again. The Lord's going to destroy the whole thing. There's a parallel here that I want to point out. In verse 10, you see the city called by her two names, Zion and Jerusalem. Uh, In that order, Zion has been built with blood. Jerusalem has been built with iniquity. And then we look down in verse 12 and we see the same pattern again. Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. So it's Zion, then Jerusalem in each verse. This is connecting the cause and the effect. Because they built it with blood and injustice, the Lord was going to tear it down. And this is said really plainly in the first line of verse 12, therefore, because of you, so because of what they are doing, the Lord is going to tear the city down. So we arrive at a a final point there. If you build it with injustice, the Lord will tear it down. Nations that build their empire and their heritage on blood and injustice and do not turn from it, the Lord tears it down. If you build it with injustice, the Lord will tear it down. If you're in the business world, you've probably figured out that once you get going and you get a little bit going for you, it is pretty easy to get farther ahead and stay farther ahead by bending the rules, by wronging others, by treating your competitors and those that you work with unfairly. And indeed, you can build yourself up a pretty strong empire doing that at times. 
But we are reminded here that an empire like that cannot last. If you build it on blood and injustice, the Lord will tear it down. It will look alluring at first, but you can ask the men who used to be on the board of Enron. It does not work out in the long term, right? The Lord tears down what is built with blood. I thank God that our nation turned from the sin of man-stealing slave trade and slavery. Can you imagine if we had not turned from government-endorsed kidnapping of Africans, taking them across the ocean, selling them, buying, selling, and trading them, treating them like they weren't humans, spreading ideology that said that they were not humans, and then also that we could enslave them. We did this for almost a hundred years in our national history, and it was endorsed by the government. Now, if we see here that what is built on blood, the Lord tears down if we don't turn from it, uh, that can give us a newfound gratitude for the fact that we turned from that sin, from the fact that though it took a bloody war and it took horrible things to happen, it took the bravery of men like Abraham Lincoln for it to happen, that the Lord gave us repentance from that, and no longer does this happen in our land. It should give us a warning, though, for the great injustices that still live today. We still have murdered over 60 million babies endorsed by the government, every last one of them legal through the practice of abortion. Each of these little babies made in the image of God, and some of this imagery from verses 2 and 3 could apply to them the way that their fetuses are treated after they are aborted. And so here is a call to say if we continue building our prosperity on the blood of the weakest among us, We have to look for the day when the Lord begins to tear us down, to dismantle us, to take it apart. In the days of the slave trade, many plantation owners in the South would argue the exact opposite. They would say, we have built our whole economy on this practice of slavery. If you stop it now, it'll break down this whole economy that we build. Everybody will be poor. There'll be no one to work my plantation. The crops won't grow. No one will eat. We've built the whole thing on this practice. And Micah would say, all the more reason to turn from it. Because if you've built it on blood, the Lord will tear it down. Now, when we look at injustices today, there are others besides abortion, but the numbers are the greatest with that one. When we look at today's injustices, we must see the same thing. If we continue to build the prosperity of our nation on the blood of others, on the oppression of others, we must look for the day when the Lord tears it down. The church has to function as the conscience of the state in that way, calling out those injustices, calling the, the, both the church and the government to turn from those things. So we thank God for some of the laws that have been passed in Indiana recently. It's now in almost every case illegal to have an abortion here in Indiana. We thank God for that, and we ask the Lord would give turning and repentance to our whole nation, even to the cultural ethos in our nation. There's more we can gain from this. Uh, If the Lord tears down what has been built in injustice and blood, uh, that can give us a comfort for those of us who are troubled by especially Christian leaders who have done awful things that we have read about. Uh, For many of you, there was a year ago a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which detailed uh, just the 
terrible things that one particular pastor in Seattle was doing, the, how this church rose meteorically, had many campuses, and several thousand people at it, and then the whole thing fell apart. There's a documentary on, maybe on Netflix now, maybe it's on Amazon, about Hillsong doing a very similar thing. And some of you have seen this, and it's troubling. And it can make you look down and say, well, does the Lord care what happens in his church? I just look care what's going on here. One thing that we need to see that is not in the media narratives about these things is simply the goodness of God to tear it down. Mars Hill does not exist as a church anymore. They lasted for 18 years, and the Lord tore down what was built in injustice. For a church that is that successful to have thousands of people 18 years is a remarkably short lifespan. We have had our struggles as a church, and we will celebrate 60 years this December, and we're pressing forward beyond that. There are many churches with 100, 200, 500-year heritages. In 18 short years, the Lord tore down what was built in wickedness there. And we have to see the goodness of God in that. He does care. He is watching. And He does care what we do as well. So we must let all these things be a warning to us. Any of us who aspire to leadership, who aspire to fatherhood, any of us who aspire to lead in the office or lead in the church or perhaps hold some of these offices today, the Lord warns us today we must know right and wrong. And we must make sure the way that we lead others is in line with God's ways with right and with wrong. But that wasn't the main reason the Lord put these words before the court that day. The main reason these words went to the nobles that day was to call them to repentance. And so that's where we land today. Uh, For some of us, I know we are looking back on a time in which we were in leadership. And I can look back on the things that I've led and know that there were some things I did that did not please the Lord. And I wonder if it's the same for any of us who have led anywhere. Words like this can fill us with regret. I shouldn't have fired that guy, but I did. I knew doing such and such was wrong, but I did. Or I knew I should have, whatever, but I I didn't go and do it. And the Lord puts a word like this today to call those of us who have led poorly to confess our sins and to turn to Jesus. Jesus. Those feelings of, I knew I should have done differently, but I did wrong, or now that I look back, I see that I should have led this way, they can fill you with despair because you can't go back and you can't undo. And a lot of times there's a suffering person because of something that you did and you can't go back and you can't make things better for them. And so is there any path forward? Is there anything that we can do? And words like these today give us hope. What does God call you to do? He calls you to look to him and confess your sin cause you to turn from sin to the mercies of Jesus Christ. If the Lord would spare King Hezekiah in that day and spare the whole city of Jerusalem, he would spare anyone who would turn to him and trust him. In fact, we even see this in the story of Jesus. Now, these leaders that we're talking about today, they heard the cries of the oppressed poor and they did not answer. They didn't listen. But how did Jesus treat people when he walked the earth? When someone was in need, 
He didn't just lead them well as king, but he would stop what he was doing and, and, and heal them with his wonderful powers. He, he led women like Mary and Martha with a, a wonderful gentleness and a godliness that we would love to see in every man. Uh, this is one who heard the cries of those who were in need. One who heard the cries even of the poor as they called out to him. There was one man, a blind man, who called out to him, son of David, have mercy on me, right? And and don't miss this. He's calling him to to the son of David, to the king. He's saying, king, have mercy on this poor blind man. And the Lord says, I will use my power and authority to give you sight. And he heals him. He's one who hears the cries of the poor and uses his power for their good. And yet... When he is fastened up onto the cross, bearing the weight of the sin of all mankind and the judgment of God poured out on him, he cries up to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he is crying to God. And the people below say, oh, let's everybody stop. Let's see if anybody answers him. And nobody answers him. So the one who heard the cries of the poor and needy looked up to his father, cried out, and God didn't answer him. Why did he do that? To pay for every time when we should have heard someone's cries and we did not hear it. So if you look at your sins, if you look at what you have done to someone else, and you say, that, that's too big, the Lord will not forgive that. I want you to see this Savior crying out to his Father on the cross, unanswered, bearing the weight of our sin, and know for sure and certain that what he has done is enough to pay for all of our sin. The one who called out and was not answered now even calls out to us and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come to me, all who are in need, I have forgiveness in my hand. And so where do you look if you're just in despair over what you may have done as a leader? Look to the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is more than enough to pay for our sins. Let's spend some time in prayer together.